0: Welcome to the Tingo Investing Podcast, where we teach you how to make a better investment and retirement portfolio. Our goal is to explain everything from basic to advanced concepts in plain language that you can understand, whether you are a beginning investor or a professional. This is episode 5, I Need Stats, Stat. Now if you just cringed right now at the corniness, I promise you I did too. In fact, I cringed so hard I knew immediately this was going to be the perfect title for this episode. You know, actually, I'm finding as I get older, I'm having the same sense of humor as my dad, and I'm kind of liking it. I mean, I'm looking forward to the future face palms of my kids. Before we get started, I wanted to share with you all a blog I just created. The URL is blog.tingo.com. That's blog.tingo.com. Now the script behind each of these podcasts will be posted to the blog, in addition to some other supplemental mater- materials like graphs, charts, illustrations, and so on. But the the podcast is still going to be written with a perspective that you will not need the blog to follow along. It will be helpful, though, to check it out after you listen to the podcast. And the blog may actually help you get a better understanding of things we talked about. It's going to help solidify your learning. And in addition, I also create an email list that you can sign up for on the Tingo blog, blog blog.tingo.com, or on the Tingo.com page, specifically the podcast page. So just type in your email, subscribe, and you will get notified of new episodes, new features on Tingo.com, and a list of interesting analysis or articles I curate every so often. Now, I'm not going to send more than one of these emails a week, so feel free to sign up and know that I will not annoy you. Now, you can access both the blog and podcast.tingo.com, and if you just look at the top and click on the links, it'll take you right there. So, moving forward, I know these past couple episodes we've been getting pretty technical, And I also know it can be tiring, but I promise you I can also empathize with everyone. I was originally a self-taught trader and investor before I did so professionally, and I take a lot of consideration into each episode, both on whether it will be interesting or useful. Anyway, so I'm going to take something incredibly useful, like volatility, and I'm going to make it super interesting. Will there be dinosaurs? No. But there will be me and my jokes, so you got that going for you, and I also got that going for me. Now, traditional investing books don't cover volatility so early on, but having been in the trading and investing world professionally, volatility and the statistics we're going to be discussing are actually some of the most important and talked about metrics in the industry. I mean, entire strategies, portfolios, anything you can imagine in finance is so centered around volatility. So if you want to know how to manage your portfolio or talk to a financial advisor, volatility is going to be one of the most fundamental metrics for you. Now those of you may be wondering, Rishi, okay, you like volatility, but what is it? Well, I I briefly describe volatility in episode 3, but let's do a quick recap and then let's move into why it's so important. To explain volatility, let's discuss a quick example. So let's say we have a portfolio of $100,000, and I know I'm saying $100,000 just because it's an easy number to work with. You don't actually need that much money to start investing. Anyway, so we have $100,000, it's January 1st, 2015. Now, you just invested in the stock market, but by December 31st, 2015, you now have $110,000. You made $10,000, or 10% of your investment, from January 1st to J- December 31st 25- of 2015. Now, what I didn't tell you, though, is that in June 2015, markets tanked and your $100,000 dropped 50% to $50,000. However, from June to December, markets rebounded so quickly that your $50,000 in June ended up being $110,000. So yes, you made $10,000 by the end of the year, but it was an awful roller coaster. I mean, imagine that. How would you feel in June? You lost half of your money in 6 months and then you quickly made it all back plus more. Now let's imagine a different scenario. It's January 1st, 2015, and you have $100,000. By December 2015, you have a, also have $110,000. So in this scenario, in this scenario, you're also making 10%. But this time, when June rolls around, your portfolio is worth $105,000. So you made 5% rather than losing 50%. This steady trend continues into December, and by December 31st, you now have $110,000. You made 10%. So which scenario would you prefer? I mean, in both scenarios, you end up with $110,000. You end, up end the year with a 10% return. Well, most people prefer the second scenario, and the reason for that is that it's not enough just to know the return of the portfolio at the, end of the, at the end of the year. What's also important is understanding the return of the portfolio and how it moved to get there. This is what volatility is. How much something moves. In the first scenario, where we lose 50% to make it back, that portfolio is said to have high volatility. Because there's a lot of movement, it's very volatile. The second scenario is said to have lower volatility because there's little movement. It's not as volatile. They both, in the end, get to the same place. It's just that one nearly makes us sick to our stomach in the process. So then why is volatility so important now that we've explained a quick overview of what it is? Volatility is one of the most important metrics in investing and trading because it gives us context. It allows us to put market movements, returns, and really anything into context. When things move, volatility lets us know if it matters. For example, in the situations we just described, in the first situation, we lost 50%, made it back, and ended up the year up $10,000 or up 10%. In the second situation, things moved a little bit more steady, or they moved steadier. So we were up 5% in June and then 10% in December. Volatility helped us keep the returns in perspective. Another example is, is that we've all seen the headlines one day the Dow is down 300 points, and the next day it's up 400 points. But how do we know if that up or down move is significant? How do we know if we should do anything to protect ourselves? Or is it the, just, is it the stock market just moving as it normally does? It fluctuates, fluctuates up and down. This is where volatility comes in. By the way, as a quick aside, as we discussed in episode 1, the Dow is a poor measure of stock, of the stock market. I'm just c- quoting headlines that we typically see. So let's now change our examples to use the S&P to keep things consistent. Let's say the S&P was down 5% one day, then the next day was up another 5%. So it was down 5%, then up 5%. And now let's say on the third day, it's only up 2%. How would you feel about the 2%? You might think, no big deal, it's been moving up or down 5% a day, what's 2%? You probably would not bat another eye and continue on your day. Now let's explore another example. The S&P was down half a percent, 0.5%, and the next day it's up 0.5%. But on the third day, it was up 2%. How would you feel? It might be a little bit more attention grabbing this time, given that the previous days were only up or down half a percent, and the third day was now up 4%. And in this situation, you might see a lot of news channels trying to figure out what happened. So do you see the difference between the two scenarios? Volatility helps give us context. It tells us how much things are currently moving, and gives us more information about if their current move matters. It helps set our expectation if a move we anticipate is within the bounds of what's currently happening. In the first example, 2% was in the bounds of what was happening because the previous day was up 5% and the day before that was down 5%. In the second situation, the 2% was a little bit more out of our expectation of bounds because previously the past two days were fluctuating up and down half a percent. So this is a topic that's really important to me because for me, it's really frustrating. A lot of financial news channels make headline stories that the Dow lost 300 points or whatever. But if you do a quick calculation, which I'll teach you coming up, you may realize that the 300 points that was lost is just normal day-to-day movements. Markets naturally fluctuate. It's what they do. We invest in them though because we think they will eventually go higher, but that's a little bit on a longer term perspective. So you end up seeing many media companies and TV channels freaking out over a move and creating panic when there may not need to be one. And this really upsets me because it appeals to fear, euphoria, and that's not a good way to teach people or make them feel better. A better way is to express news calmly and let people discuss whether or not what happened is important. Once they do that, maybe we can then discover ways we can navigate the current situation. Unfortunately, it's not as sexy as making noises, pretty graphics, and attention-grabbing headlines about why you need to watch right now. My goal isn't to get you to stop watching these news channels or for you to stop watching these news channels. I mean, sometimes I watch them too. They can have a lot of good information and keep us in the loop. But it is important to be skeptical of them and for you to know when they are playing to our emotions. And a fun fact is kind of like a shameless plug, but let's just call it a fun fact. If you go on Tingo.com, you'll notice some news articles are faded out. Their links are faded out. So I designed computer algorithms that are running, and they detect if a company is potentially using words to artificially play to our emotions. And if they do, the link fades out. The stronger the fade, the more likely deceptive language could be being used. Now, like I said, the article may have good information, but it's still important to be aware that they may be trying to get a certain emotional feeling out of us. Now, the algorithms will never be perfect, but they are getting better. We've discussed what volatility is and why it matters, but what else? In episode 4, we discussed how beta and correlations are measures of portfolio diversification. Well, you can consider volatility as a measure of uncertainty. What uncertainty there is in the markets. Wait, what? How does how much something move tell you about how uncertain something is? Let me explain with one of my favorite desserts ever, cookies. I don't know about you, but I absolutely love cookies. One Halloween, I was actually a cookie monster and I filled a pail of cookies to give out to people because I naively thought it would be a ton of fun and nothing strange would happen. I ended up eating most of the cookies, but let's just say some interesting characters, pun intended, asked me for some. Well, the characters became more and more interesting to put it lightly, And soon I decided it's probably best not to carry around a pail of free cookies with you at a Halloween party. Yeah. So let's just say I learned from my mistakes and I no longer dress up as Cookie Monster and give cookies to people. I am now selling cookies at a cookie stand. And my cookie formula uses flour and chocolate chips. I buy my chocolate chips from a friend who has this weird fascination with chocolate chips and spends his days finding the best ones in terms of taste and shape. Each day he goes to the market, buys a ton of chocolate chips, then scrutinizes each chocolate chip, selecting the best. That's my cookie's secret ingredient, the best chocolate chips available. They taste so good that everybody wants them. Now, I'm a kind man and my cookies are good, so I want everyone to eat them. I sell them for only a dollar. I haven't changed my cookie prices in over 10 years. My cookie price never moves because I always know I will be able to make them. My friend is there, selecting the best chocolate chips, and I have tons of flour. The price of my cookies has zero volatility. It doesn't change. Now, let's say my weird chocolate chip friend tells me, Hey Rishi, man, so there's a chance I go out of town for a couple months, and if I do leave to go out of town, I won't be able to provide you the chocolate chips during that time. I won't know for sure though if I'm going on that vacation for another two weeks. No! Who will buy my cookies if I don't have chocolate chips? The cookies are how I pay for things. So what do I do to protect myself? Well, I can't hoard my cookies and sell them gradually because they'll go stale. I have to sell my cookies immediately. And I'm not certain if he's going on vacation yet, so if I hike up prices too much, my customers will go to someone else. What do I do? Well, maybe I could slightly increase the price of my cookies, that way if he does go on vacation I can still pay my bills. I can pay my rent, my mortgage, whatever. But yeah, I won't be living large, but at least I can support myself. So now there's uncertainty in our chocolate chip cookie market. We're not sure what's going to happen. What if we don't have chocolate chip cookies for two months? Now, I think running a cookie stand and being in the industry for so long that there's a 50-50 chance my friend goes on vacation. So I decided, you know what? I'm going to modestly increase the price of my cookie to $1.25. The price of my cookie went from $1 to now $1.25. Now, let's say one week later, he comes back to me and he says, hey, Rishi, man, I still haven't figured out if I'm going on vacation. Now, he told me last week he was gonna go on vacation two weeks from then. It's already been a week, and he's, and I still have no idea if he's going on vacation. How am I gonna support myself if I can't have chocolate chips? I mean, my cookies are awful without those chocolate chips. They're literally awful. It's like eating cardboard. I never used to bake. There's actually no logical reason why I should be running a cookie stand. My entire cookie is based on one secret ingredient that is dependent upon this guy going on vacation. I'm freaking out. My cookies are terrible. So I need to find a way to provide for myself. If he's going on vacation for two months, I need to increase my prices so I have extra savings. So I decide I'm going to increase my prices to $2 a cookie. I started at $1. I increase it to $1.25 and now I'm increasing it to $2. The prices fluctuated even more because now, now there is still more uncertainty and there's more of a sense of urgency. I need to protect myself. Now, my friend is three days away from his potential vacation day and says, Rishi, I don't think I'm going to go on vacation, but I still can't say for sure yet. Whew, well, I'm not out of the woods yet, but I feel a little bit more certain about the future. So I'm like, you know what, I'm going to drop my price to $1.50 a cookie. Two days later, he tells me he's not going on vacation at all, and I breathe a huge sigh of relief. I realize, you know what, going forward, I probably shouldn't charge only a dollar for my cookies, because then I'm too susceptible to his vacation days. So from then on, I decide in the future, I'm always going to charge $1.25 for my cookie. And I never increase my prices again from $1.25 for another 10 years. Alright, so what happened and why am I telling you about my trials and tribulations as a cookie stand owner? Well, when I started out for 10 years, I never charged anything other than a dollar for each of my cookies. There was zero volatility in the price of my cookies. The price didn't move because I knew my friend over here, my chocolate chip cookie, my chocolate chip friend, was going to always be there. But all of a sudden, as soon as there was uncertainty when he was possibly going on vacation for two months, I was now at risk. I needed to create a cushion to protect myself and lower my risk, so I increased my prices. The uncertainty and the urgency increased some more, and now my price fluctuated even more. I didn't know what was going to happen, I need to protect myself. When my friend gave me more and more information that his vacation doesn't look likely, there was less uncertainty for me. So things were less at risk. When my friend finally decided not to go on vacation, there was almost no uncertainty and things were not at risk. So I went from 10 years of zero volatility to a much, much higher volatility. Now my price was fluctuating a lot based on the news of my friend's potential vacation in two weeks. And then now, at the end of this, I kept my price at $1.25. The volatility was zero again. The $1.25 is just a higher price. For the 10 years it's $1.25, the volatility is still zero. So remember, volatility only measures how much something changes, not the price level it's at. The price was at a dollar in the beginning for 10 years, there was zero volatility. And at the end, when, my, when I increased the price of my cookies to $1.25 for another 10 years, there was zero volatility. The volatility happened in the two weeks my chocolate chip supplier friend was deciding whether to go on vacation. This is an example of how volatility can be used to help measure uncertainty. Notice how the price level doesn't tell you much about the uncertainty or the risk, but it's how quickly and how much the price moves that helps us understand uncertainty. The next question, how do we put it all together? We know what volatility is, but with beta and correlation, we could calculate an exact value. Before we continue, I want to share a fact with you all. So I don't know how many of my listeners, how many of you all, watch stand-up comedians, but a few stand comedians like Jim Gaffigan and um, Gabriel Iglesias talk about their favorite food. And when they go perform, fans will send them their favorite food to their hotel room. It's how fans show them how much they love their performers. Now, I'm not saying you should send me cookies. That's not what I'm getting at at all. But I am saying that you should definitely And consider. once you're done considering it, let's move on to how we actually calc- the, calculate the value of volatility. Now, we've spoken about volatility in very general terms. We've spoken about that it means how much something moves. But with beta and correlation, we calculated the exact value. So let's explore about how to calculate a number value for volatility. And in order to do that, we need to learn some pretty cool stuff first, specifically some of the basics behind statistics. So to begin, we're going to get really, really simple. And we're going to ask ourselves, what does an average really mean? We hear it all the time, oh, he's taller than average. Some people are very tall, others are very short, and before I start sounding like a Dr. Seuss book, I'm going to stop right here. What average means is that if you took the height of everybody in the world, the average height would be right in the middle. It's the height where half of the population is above that height and half of the world is below that height. It's the middle height. You get that value by adding up all the heights in the world and then dividing it by the total number of people in the world. Now I'm going to switch up some terminology here, and instead of average, I'm going to interchange the word mean. Mean is a statistical term for what we often mean when we say average. In this podcast, average and mean will mean the same thing. Or more specifically, the type of average we're discussing is called the arithmetic mean if we want to get technical. Some of you may be thinking, uh, duh Rishi, it's the average, why are we still talking about this? But the reason I want to emphasize this is for two reasons. One, we throw around average so casually we sometimes forget what it really means. Two, we're going to use this average concept to get a little bit more advanced. So you know how I said half the world is taller than average and the other half is shorter than average? Well, when you put the two halves together, the whole population, it's what we call a population. Let's close our eyes for a second, unless you're listening to this while driving, and then please do not close your eyes. But if you're not, let's close our eyes and let's imagine the entire world. All 7 billion people as of March 2015. Do you picture it? I don't, because 7 billion people is a lot, but I am picturing a lot of people. Well, let's say that we have the middle height. Now half the world is taller than that height, and the other half of the world is shorter than that height. Now let's focus on one of the halves. How about the tall half? Think about how many people you know who are 6 foot. Now tell me how many people you know that are 6'4". How about 6'8"? How about seven foot? And how about 7'5"? As the heights get taller, as people get taller, there are less people who have that height. The same is true on the shorter side. So we tend to know a lot of people who are closer to average height than we know people who are super, super, super tall or super, super short. So if you picture this on a graph, where you see the heights on the bottom axis, and the number of people who have that height on the vertical axis, you see that the majority of people have heights around the middle. The majority of people have heights around the average. As you get taller, less and less people have that height. And as you get shorter and shorter, less and less people express that height. So this graph you may be picturing in your head is called the bell curve. And if you want a visual representation of it, go to blog.tingo.com and you will see it. Now don't worry, we're getting close to how we calculate volatility. So we have this distribution of our what we call a distribution of our population. We have the average height in the middle and we have very tall people to the right side and very uh, short people to the left side. Now, let's go ahead and change our example from heights into percent returns of the market. Let's do a percent return of a stocker ETF And let's do it on a SPY ETF, or the S&P ETF. Now, prices tend to follow a similar type of distribution as heights do. It's formally called a normal distribution. Now, just a caveat, stocks do not exactly follow this, but in order to simplify things, we're going to assume that they do. Now, like heights, there tends to be an average return. In our examples, let's assume the average return for the S&P is close to 1%. Some of you may be freaking out and that's because this is actually a very, very, very high daily percent return. I'm just saying 1% because it's just going to help us with our calculation. Okay, so let's assume that the S&P, the SPY ETF's average return is 1%. This means that half of the daily returns are going to be greater than 1% and half of the daily returns are going to be less than 1%. And just like heights, the larger returns from the average, the, ones, the the higher returns are going to be less common than those returns closer to the average. And on the other side of it, the lower returns are the negative returns, the very high negative returns are going to be less common than the number of returns closer to the average. So like heights, how they're less very very tall people and they're less very very short people, the same is true for returns. The majority of returns are going to be around the middle. But wouldn't it be cool to know how far from the average something is? Wouldn't it be cool to quantify it to know that, hey, this is really far from the average, so this may be more significant? How cool would that be? Well, we're about to get there, and to get there, we need to calculate one metric first called variance. And I promise you, once we get variance calculated, it's literally a one second calculation to convert variance into volatility. And before we go into the calculation of variance, I just want to make a quick note to all my listeners. This is going to be a bit more quantitative, and it may take a couple listens to get through. If you don't have a pen and paper in hand, that's perfectly fine, because I'm going to talk more about the intuition behind the formula we're going to use. You know, you can always look up a formula on the internet. It's the concept behind the formula that can make, one, make a formula so powerful. Now the concept of variance that I'm about to describe took me a lot of struggling to eventually get down, and I want to explain it in a way that makes it as easy as possible. If you just want to know the gist of how we use the formula and don't really care about the concept so much, just bear with me for the next five or minutes or so while I get a bit technical. But I really do recommend you understand the concepts behind the formula. All right, here we go. Let's go describe some variance. So variance is a statistical measure that simply measures the average distance returns are from their mean. The average distance the stock returns are from their mean. For example, what I mean by this is that in the example we're describing, we know that 1% is the average return of the S&P ETF, the SPY ETF. Now, some days we may get a 5% return in SPY, and other days we may get a negative 2% return. So what we wanna do is we wanna take the 5% we want to take we want to get the distance of the return from the mean so in this case the first case the 5% move is the return and we want to see the distance from the mean we want to see how far it is from 1% so we take 5% we subtract the mean 1% and we know that 5% is 4% away from the average so we take 5% subtract 1% the mean and that w- that way we know 5% is 4 away from the average Now let's do the same with the down day, the down 2% day. We would represent a down day as a negative number. So that would be a negative 2% day. Negative 2% is the return, negative 2% is the return, 1% is the mean. So negative two minus one gives us negative 3%. So we see that negative two is three away from the mean of 1%. Now keep in mind, we want to measure distance. So we want our numbers to be positive if your neighbor was looking for his keys that dropped, and you saw that he dropped them right behind him, you wouldn't say to your neighbor, hey neighbor, go negative 3 feet. Instead, you would say, neighbor, go back 3 feet. In the same way, let's not say 2% is negative 3 away from 1%. Let's say 2% is 3 to the left of 1%. We want to make the negative numbers positive, because we want to measure distance, like I said, you don't tell your neighbor a negative distance, you tell your neighbor a positive distance. You don't say, go back, go negative three feet, you say, go back three feet. All right, so one way we can make these negative numbers positive is to square them or multiply a value by itself. So we take the distance and square it. So in the negative 2% day, it was three away from the average return of 1%. So let's take that negative 3%, and square it, so negative 3 times negative 3 and we get a positive 9. In the same way, the 5% return is 4 away from the average of 1%. So we take that 4% and we square it, 4%, 4 times 4 is going to give us 16. Now we want to take up all of these positive squared values that we just calculated and take an average. This gives us the metric we call variance. So to summarize, for each return we subtract the mean, and then we square that difference. Once we square that difference, we add them all up and we take the average of that. So we square all the differences and we take the average of all of those squared differences. Boom, variance. Well, I know this can get a little bit hard to see or hard to hear, so I'm going to put it on my blog, blog blog.tingo.com, or you can probably listen to this a couple times and I'll repeat it one more time. We take the return of the day, we subtract the mean return, and we square that difference. We do this for every day, and then we take the average of those squared differences. And that is variance. Well, guess what? You know I said converting variance to volatility is a one-second calculation? You take that variance, you do the square root of it, and you get a measure called standard deviation. Otherwise known as volatility. There it is. Volatility. The square root of variance. Now, I'm going to do a quick aside. There could probably may be a very few quant heavy people who are listening. Uh, These are probably going to be more um, professional traders. Now, you may be thinking, Vrishi, standard deviation isn't always volatility. Well, you're not wrong. But for the average investor, the difference is so small, it probably won't matter. So if you are just, if you're a learning investor, if you're just starting out, know that there are a couple ways to calculate volatility, but the standard deviation is probably one of the most common available. So going forward in this podcast, when we talk about volatility, we're going to talk about standard deviation. Cool? All right. Awesome. All right. Rishi, you may be thinking, we now know how to calculate volatility, but who cares? What's the practical application? What do we use it for? How do we, I still don't know if a 5% move in the markets, I don't know how to tell if that matters. I'm getting there, don't worry. So for the next step, you need to remember three numbers, 68, 95, 99.7. Again, 68, 95, and 99.7. Memorized? Doesn't matter, because I'm going to repeat that number a few more times throughout this podcast. Alright, so standard deviation, is otherwise known as volatility for this podcast, is a measure of how far something is away from the average. In the coming examples, we're going to say the mean return of the S&P is 1% and the standard deviation or volatility is 2%. Now, saying something is one standard deviation means we take the mean and add and subtract the standard deviation. So if the mean is 1%, the standard deviation or volatility is 2%, we do 1 minus 2 and 1 plus 2. That gives us negative 1% and 3%. So if the S&P has a, has a mean of 1% and a volatility of 2%, we subtract the standard deviation from the mean and we add the standard deviation from the mean. This gives us the values negative 1% and 3% just to repeat. So any time the S&P returns a value between 1% and 3%, it's said to be within one standard deviation. Approximately 68% of returns are within one standard deviation. Now, if, a, if something is two standard deviations, we take the standard deviation, or volatility, multiply it by 2, and add and subtract that to the mean. So one standard deviation is 2% and two standard deviations is going to be 4%. We do the same thing. We take the mean, subtract two standard deviations, and add two standard deviations. This gives us one minus 4% and one plus 4%, which is negative 3% to 5%. Returns between negative 3% and 5% are said to be within two standard deviations. Approximately 95% of returns are going to be within those two standard deviations. Now, this means 5% of the time, it's perfectly acceptable for returns to be greater or smaller, much smaller than those values. That's approximately 12 business days a year. So let's go into three standard deviations. If something is three standard deviations, we take the standard deviation or volatility. Multiply it, by, multiply it by three and add and subtract that to the mean return. So one standard deviation was two percent, and three standard deviations is going to be six percent. So that's two percent times three standard deviations. That's how we got six percent. Now we do the same thing. We take the mean, we add three standard deviations, and we subtract three standard deviations. This gives us one percent to six percent. I'm sorry. This gives us one percent minus six percent and one percent plus six percent which is negative 5% to 7%. So returns between negative 5% and 7% are said to be within three standard deviations. And you may have guessed it, approximately 99.7% of returns are within three standard deviations. So that means 0.3% of the time, it's not going to be unreasonable for a return to be outside those values, either much larger or smaller. Now, keep in mind, even though we're saying 99.7% of the time this is going to happen, there are approximately 252 business days in a year. So 0.3% times those 252% business days means that about two or three times a year on average, we can see moves that are greater than three standard deviations. This is why 68, 95, and 99% are so important to memorize. To figure out if a move is significant, we need to know... At least three things. One, the standard deviation, two, the mean of the returns, and three, the return you're comparing it to. So let's make this example a bit more real world. In the above examples we said the average return of the S&P was 1% and the volatility was 2%. In reality this is actually very high. The average daily return of the S&P is very close to 0%. I'm sorry, the average daily return of the S&P is very close to 0%. The standard deviation, though, is closer to 1%. This is the very long-run average from the 1950s and so on. Now, in episode 4, we talked about how beta and correlation can constantly change, and the same is true for volatility, too. During 2008, for example, volatility levels were much higher than they have been in 2014. So like correlation, volatility can also change throughout time. It's just that if you take the very, very long-term average, the S&P's daily average return tends to be around zero, and the standard deviation is around 1%. Now, believe it or not, you can actually trade volatility just like you can trade correlation. You can actually trade a statistic. How crazy is that? And not only that, there's even an index that measures the volatility of the S&P. I mean, that's pretty meta, right? I mean, not only is the S&P an index, but there is an index that measures the volatility of another index. This volatility index is known as the VIX or the VIX index. You'll probably often hear it in the news as VIX. So if you look up the value of the VIX using your favorite financial website, you will, as of today, March 23rd, 2015, see the value around 13.5. Now, when you're looking at what the market is pricing in for volatility, it's generally better to look at the value of the VIX for the previous day. This is because if a market makes a big move, the VIX will also increase the day of. But if you're checking to see if, the, if today's market move was considered important, you want to look at what the VIX was yesterday because the close of yesterday is what's really going to be a better measure of what the market considers significant. You want to know what traders were pricing in before it happened, not after the event happened. For example, if the market goes up 10% in an unexpected move, the VIX will also rapidly jump. But that doesn't mean you can use that VIX value. You should use yesterday's price when maybe the VIX was expecting maybe a 1-2% to move. Because that will tell you, comparing the 10% to what the market was pricing yesterday is a lot more meaningful than comparing what the VIX is saying after the move already happened. Alright, so the previous day was March 20th, a Friday. And on Friday, the value of the VIX was 13. You may be thinking, whoa, one center deviation is 13%? And the answer is, sort of. The number is an annualized number meaning that that's the volatility of the return for the entire year. So if you're looking at the VIX and you're using the value of 13, you want to consider consider it to the percent return of the entire year. Like when December 31st rolls around, if the return of the S&P was 12%, then you would say it's within one standard deviation because one standard deviation was 13%. Now, I don't know about you, but personally, I like to care sometimes more about the daily returns, the volatility for the daily returns. After all, it's in the news that you often see, oh, the market was down 1% today, 2% or 3%. And looking at the daily returns may give us more flexibility into when we need to maybe change our portfolio. So to turn that 13% into a daily number, just simply do this. Divide 13 by the square root of 252. Now 252 isn't a random number. It actually represents the number of business days in a year. Okay, so the square root of 252 is approximately 15.9. So if you take the VIX value of 13 and divide it by 15.9, it gives us approximately 0.82%. That's a one standard deviation move for the S&P according to volatility traders right now. There are some more subtleties though, but for all intents and purposes, this is a good approximation. Now treat the VIX also, treat the VIX level like a stock price. It can be wrong. It is an index of what traders consider to be the proper volatility level, but in reality though, traders can often be wrong, and for some other reasons why, um, the VIX tends to be wrong for different reasons. But in an approximation standpoint, let's just go with it, and for... The typical use, it probably works just fine. So we've now converted that VIX value into a daily standard deviation value. So now that 13% divided by square root of 252 gives us 0.82. And now when we're looking at the daily returns of the S&P, we want to compare it using the 0.82 standard deviation. So like we said, the average daily S&P return, the mean daily S&P return tends to be approximately zero. We know long-term, the standard deviation tends to be around 1%, but using our more recent calculation, we're seeing right now the market is pricing in about 0.82%. So that means a one standard deviation move in the S&P as of March 24, 2015, is between negative 0.82% and positive 82%. So 68% of the time, a daily return in the S&P Is going to fall within that range between negative negative 0.82% and positive 82%. In a two standard deviation situation, 95% of the time, the daily return will be between negative 1.64% and 1.64%, positive 1.64%. Now remember, to get two standard deviations, we we just simply take the one standard deviation move and times it by two. That's how we got negative 1.64 and positive 1.64. In a 3 standard deviation move, the daily return will fall between negative 2.46% of the time and positive 2.46% of the time. Now remember to get 3 standard deviations, we simply take the 1 standard deviation value, 0.82%, and multiply it by 3. And that's how we got negative 2.46 and positive 2.46. Now keep in mind, moves tend to be within 1 standard deviation 68% of the time. They tend to be within two standard deviations 95% of the time, and they tend to be within three standard deviations 99.7% of the time. A common misconception is to think, okay, well, this move was greater than two standard deviations, so this must be something very big. Well, if you consider that 5% of the time is going to be greater than two standard deviations, and you figure that there are 252 business days in a year, that means approximately 12 business days of the year a value will be greater than two standard deviations. And if you do the same for three standard deviations, in that case, it tends to values tend to fall within three standard deviations 99.7% of the time, you find that approximately there'll be maybe two or three three standard deviation moves in a year. Now, this is a good timeline because if we notice in a big market event, what if we get a five or six standard deviation move? What do we do then? What does that mean? I mean, we knew that it would be greater than three standard deviations a couple times a year, but what? It, but now it's greater than five standard deviations. What does that all mean? And this is also another very complex topic that will really require an entire episode dedicated toward portfolio risk analytics or more advanced portfolio risk analytics. And this is something I actually get really excited about and passionate about, and it makes me really happy. But I also know we've gone a lot into statistics these past couple episodes, and I want to change things up. So the next episode will not be focusing on heavy statistics, it's going to be focusing on something pretty fun. So with that, I just want to recap and say, so far, this entire episode, we've talked about a lot of things. And this may be an episode you may want to consider re-listening to. I know it's pushing approximately 40 to 45 minutes, but this topic is so crucial for understanding the risk behind your portfolio, for understanding uncertainty and that sort of stuff, and understanding the context of how things move, that it may be worth a re-listen. So we talked about what volatility is, why it's important, and how it gives us context, and how it can give us a measure of uncertainty. We then also discussed how to calculate it and how to use that calculation to make a practical aspect in our world. For example, using volatility and standard deviation, calculating these values helps us know if market moves are actually big or if they're just run of the mill. And once you have that, hopefully when you see a news headline saying, markets dropped 2%, the sky is falling, you'll quickly whip out your calculator, look at the VIX, and see if the sky really is falling. Hopefully it's not, so we can continue to live and be happy. Anyway, with that, I just want to say I hope you've had as much fun listening to this episode as I've had making it. These episodes take a lot of my time, and I love hearing your feedback because they help make me gear these episodes in a direction that's interesting to everybody, and at the same time, informative. So if you have any feedback or any topic you want to cover, let me know. And I will get back to you and let you know what I think, how to do it. And if I can't make an episode immediately, if it's a bit more of an advanced topic than the current episode we're on, I will personally email you a response or Skype you or whatever would be more helpful for you. All right. So my email is Rishi at Tingo That's R-I-S-H-I at T-I-I-N-G-O dot Look forward to talking to you, with you all next episode.